podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, it's the Anfield Wrap and I'm Gareth Roberts and I've just dropped my pen. Um, <laughs> this week we're doing something different with the Anfield Wrap. We're not just dropping pens, we're also going to talk slightly differently about, about the Reds and about football in general because obviously Liverpool didn't play at the weekend, no, uh, out of all the Cups as I'm sure you're all aware. Uh, another seven days as well until, uh, until another game of football. So what we thought we'd do is we, we've invited Damien Hughes back in. Uh, delighted to have him in again. If you didn't hear him last time, you should really look that up. Uh, the last show we did with him was titled Groundhog Day. That was back in July 2016. And a good chat it was. So if you don't know who Damien is, he's worked in rugby league, Premier League football, rugby union, athletic boxing, swimming among other sports, and he's a professor of organisational psychology and change. He's a sports psychology consultant, and he's the author of a string of books, including Five Steps to a Winning Mindset, which I can truthfully say that I have read from cover to cover, and it was fantastic. I loved it, and I would recommend it, so please look that up. Uh, joining me to talk to Damien is John Gibbons and Joel Richards. Um, I mean, Trues were as good there, were they, Joel? Oh, Sorry, no. No, just, uh, let's get on with it. Used to it, used to it in the background. Let's get on. I'm guessing most people know who them two right guys are. Um, but you know, Damien does. Damien deserves the big, the, the big round of applause and everything else. He's come all the way from Manchester to do this. So, you know, fair play. Um, so to start off, then um, I thought we'd get get it out the way early. Uh, talk about your latest project, Damien. Your new book. Uh, yeah. Tell us what what it is. When it's likely to be out and uh, how people can get hold of it and all the rest of it. Yeah, uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me again. I really no enjoyed it last time, and it was great interacting with a lot of the listeners as well uh, after it, so thanks for having me back. Um, yeah, um, I've been working um, for the last 12 months, really, on a project. Um, it's a book uh, that's very much around culture. You know, one of the big topics that you often hear spoken about in sporting environments is, oh, you've got to get the right culture, the culture's got to be right, or high-performing culture's a key. And it's very much looking at, well, what does that actually mean and how do you do it? So when I was asked uh, by my publishers to to take it on as a project, the question was, well, uh, you need to almost find examples that nobody could argue with, organisations that are doing this, that people go, well, that's obvious. So... When you think of that, it narrows it down to a few um, a few options. The obvious ones are like the New Zealand All Black rugby team. Uh, you could argue British cycling over the last few years. I know there's a, there's some stirrings around them at the moment. But then the other one that seems to who's dominated interna- uh, like football on an international scale has been Barcelona. Mm. So they seem the obvious ones to go and investigate. And then what became interesting with it was uh, just how important that Barcelona did rate culture so um i discovered a document was given it by one of the protagonists that i'll tell you about in a minute but um when um Rijkaard came to his end as coach back in 2007 2008 the club realized that they'd been a bit too loyal and they'd give him an extra year that wasn't working out but what they decided to do was use that year wisely to find the next coach and a couple of the guys that were sat on the board, one of them is a lad called Ferenc Soriano, the other one was a guy called, and I'll give you his Catalan title, Cheeky Bagheera Stain, that are now at City. Glad you said that. Yeah, I, well, <laughs> well, well, I was calling him Tixie for a while. <laughs> got corrected by them uh, when I met him. But uh, what they did was they put together a criteria for what the next coach had to be. And they had a nine-point checklist, and if you have a look at the nine points, um, there's only two of them that would give you a clue you're talking about a football club. 
the rest of them are all around culture, getting the right people in, developing your own talent, having the right kind of behaviours, the right kind of attitude and ethos. And that was where they then went on a, on a search of um, possible managers. Now, the obvious one, which is where the book has started from, looks at is the obvious candidate back in 2008 was Jose Mourinho, just left Chelsea. He's a serial winner. You know, he's, he's, he's won the European Cup at Porto, won the league twice at Chelsea. And it was obvious that he was going to get the job. And yet, when you applied this nine-point criteria to him, they decided that he, he didn't fit as many of the criteria as Guardiola that was just doing, had done one year in the Barcelona reserve team, coaching them, their B team. So it starts from that and looking at how Barcelona and Guardiola in particular set up the culture, really put an emphasis on how you can create a high-performing culture. And I think the seeds of what he did in his four years are still playing out 10 years later after, you know, or six years after he left. He's still seeing some of the results of it today. I think maybe they're starting to go on the wane as the, as the result last week proved in Europe. But actually, they're still dominating by putting the emphasis on culture which is very much what the book's been about has the book got a title yet or is, it still, is that still sort of under wraps at this point yeah it, um, there's a few different working titles that um, so at the minute I've finished writing it and I've submitted it to the publishers uh, so the title that I've given it is Dynasty so the, D, uh, the DNA of a winning culture whether that's the final title because it's expected out at the end of this year so it's right. just in the editing stage at the moment but the last 12 months have been around interviewing a lot of the main players within that and then sort of digging a little bit deeper to find out what it is and I think there's lots of parallels so for people listening to this today you know we were talking outside of the room here there's lots of parallels that you can see at Liverpool you can see it at any at any sporting organisation that seems to lose its way a bit or doesn't seem to be as successful when you start digging the the uh, the criteria of what a successful culture is it's often that they've lost sight of that which is why it then results in poor performances. Yeah, I think we've seen that. I think I think we could all all say that we we saw that under the, under Rodgers certainly sort of ticked along very nicely at one point, and obviously we go so close with the league, and then did feel like the wheels fell off and it went totally back the other way. And Rodgers started to say some really mad stuff to the press and everything else, and then you know it only looked like it was ever going to end up in one way, and and it did, and he got the sack. Um, I mean, Damien very kindly let me read a synopsis of the new book, um, and I thought. It'd be interesting to talk through some of the key points he made in that synopsis and sort of apply them to, to Liverpool now under Jurgen Klopp, really. So there was five principles that he pulls out there in, in Barcelona's DNA that he says can be applied to, to create a winning culture in there. Big picture, artefacts, repetition, cultural architects and active leadership um, which you very cleverly there have, have created Barca. <laughs> yeah, it's almost, it's, you think it, you think it was some thinking behind it. <laughs> it's almost like that wasn't by accident. Uh, big picture then, first of all, uh, it's it's like what you were saying there, isn't it, Damien, about that, th- there's a big picture that you have, something that you write down, that's, you know, Barcelona have them more than a club, don't they? Yeah. That's the thing, and, you know, our mates over the park at Everton have got the, um, what is it? What, the People's Club, you mean? No, or? no, the R one, the Latin one. All oh, no, Yeah, that one. What Only the best will do. That's it. Uh, hasn't quite been the case for them, obviously. Just wanted to get a dig in there. <laughs> I thought you might have meant the School of Science. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, but, you know, 
big organisations, clubs, that they have that, don't they? They have something that they write down, they've agreed upon. It's sort of like, and everything else feeds out from that. Yeah, yeah. So it's that idea that we all respond to, uh, to moving towards something. It's almost like that idea of where we're heading to. And I think that some clubs will identify it in terms of it might be they wouldn't be seen as just being excellent in their own right they might be innovators they might want to break the like break the rules and do something different but some clubs uh, like barcelona there's something more of a social identity and for them you know barcelona itself is tied up with sort of catalan independence so for barcelona it's about representing catalonia out to the rest of the world you know and i think you can see in terms of when Liverpool's resurgence came in, when Shankly in the in the late fifties was yeah. it when he came in, when he spoke about this idea that you know the um, he spoke about the city, the fans, and the team all shared that same sort of history, that same sort of DNA that they were talking about. You can see how that goes right the way into the culture of it. Now I think at Barcelona, what was interesting was that. Although they were representing Catalonia, when Cruyff came, first of all as a player in '74, and then back as a manager in um, in in the, um, the early '90s, that he said that what was going on at Barcelona was that although they wanted to represent Catalonia, that had almost manifested itself in what he said was Madridites. So it was everything they did was measured against Madrid. So they always had that inferiority complex that you know the authorities are against us, nobody likes us. And Cruyff said, you can't be successful if you see yourself as a victim. So he came in and said, this is the blueprint. This is how we're going to play. We're going to pass the ball. We're going to develop our own talent. We're going to sort of play football in the right way. The bit that really fascinates me, and this is where I can see lots of parallels with Klopp as we were talking about is, so they had this identity that they tried to hold true to, and they'd had ups and downs with it as a club. But when Guardiola was brought in in 2007, 2008, they said, we know what football we want to play. We need somebody to almost give us the, um, what I call the trademark behaviours. We need to give us the script of how we're going to get there. Mm. So what Guardiola did that was brilliant in its simplicity was, he, he, so he introduced this idea of a ladder of behaviours. So when he came in, he said, we know how we're going to play football. We know we're going to represent Catalonia. But there's three ways, there's three behaviours that are non-negotiable. If you wouldn't be part of this journey, there's three behaviours. So the three behaviours he gave them was, first of all, humility. He said, you might be the best player in the world, but if you've not got the humility to come in and learn, you're not going to stay the best player in the world. Second behaviour he came in with was hard work. So he said, if you come in here, you've got to like, really work your bollocks off. The third thing he came in with was, you've got to put the team first. And there was an order to those. So he said, humility, then hard work, then team first. And he drove the whole culture of it on those three behaviours. So I, so he brought in an assistant, a guy called Manuel SDR. Now, this guy is a fascinating character because he's got nothing to do with football. He's a, he's a, he used to be called the Maradona, a water polo. So he was seen as like the best player in the world at that sport. But Guardiola had been mates with him. And he said to him, don't worry about the football, I'll take care of that. I want you to help me establish this culture. So one of the things that he did was, in his first season, he used to get SDR during games to watch the bench. And he said, I want you to make a note of when a chance goes wide of the post, I want you to tell me who jumps up, because it's a near miss, and who just sits on the bench and doesn't react. And he said, because what that tells you is, when nobody's watching, those guys are not team players, because they're sulking that they haven't been picked. Mm. 
And he boasts about it. He won't talk about the names of it, but he says over that first season, there was a consistent roll call of names that, when they weren't picked, would just sit there almost ambivalent to the results taking place on the pitch. And after his first year, Guardiola got rid of them because the whole thing was around these behaviours. So there's a great example that when I started digging around, you see how the question I asked some of these guys when I was interviewing them was, take Ibrahimovic when they brought him in, because culturally, this is a fascinating one, he's still their record signing, so they bought him for 70 million euros, and 10 months later sold him for 45 million. So the question you ask is, well, why would you do that? It's almost like, because a lot of clubs would just keep persisting yeah. with this and, until you get the best out of him. Yeah, so when you've paid that much money for a player, you, what you'll find is a lot of clubs, that eat, like despite the evidence that they've seen before them, would just keep persisting and the player becomes all-powerful. But Barcelona, like when I interviewed some of the people behind the decision, went, oh yeah, it was painful to remove him, but if we hadn't have done, the damage to the culture would have been irreparable. So in his own book, Ibrahimovic gives you the clues as to what happened. He basically transgressed their behavioural code. So his first day of training, he, he tells a story when Guardiola comes up to him and says to him, listen, I know you like your flash cars, your Ferraris, your Lamborghinis. And he said, but you don't drive them into training. We've got a rule that you, 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 you've got a club Audi, drive it in. And when he asks why, he says to him, well, this isn't a car showroom. We're humble lads. We come here to do work. So he agrees to do it, and he says he couldn't understand it, but he, he goes along with it. And then later on in the season, he gets dropped uh, for a game. So when it's all going wrong, he gets dropped for a game against Almuera. So the next day, he says, oh, forget this. And he drives in, in like his Lamborghini or something, and the press have a field day because they report that his car is worth more than the Almuera annual bill or something like that. So first of all, it's a transgression of the sense of humility. The second one about the hard work, he tells a story about he went on a Christmas break, he said, I'm starting to get pissed off at Barcelona, come back. He said, I go up to northern Sweden and I'm ragging me snow speeder around and he said, and I get a frostbite. So he says, I come back, that affects me. And then he crashes his car, driving ridiculously, so he can't train, so hard work gets transgressed. The third thing is, he then, he then playing the European Cup um, quarter-final against Inter Milan and Guardiola asks him to accommodate Messi by playing out wide. And his exact words in his own book was, he says, he says to Guardiola, um, he says, I'm a Ferrari and you're driving me like a Fiat. If you don't play me where I'm best, don't play me. Now, at that stage, you go, well, if you understand the rules of the game, that humility, hard work and being and putting the team first are what keep you in that environment, he's given enough evidence there to say, well, he either doesn't want to be in there or maybe the club needs to make a decision for him. You know, um, what you'll find is that a lot of high-performing cultures, they're very, very clear about the behaviours. So when I work with some of these teams, I often say, your talent gets you in the room. What keeps you here is how you behave. So if you can articulate in the strongest possible terms, this is the rules of the game. What you find is, we, could, the, we often talk about it as the FIFO effect kicks in. People either choose to fit into that environment and actively go out to behave in those ways. Or they'll find a way out. There's not a, uh, there's a less polite way of saying the FO yeah. bit. But or they'll find a way out of it. Either the environment will reject them 
or they will just decide this isn't for me this isn't the kind of thing well, there's, there's quite a strong parallel here isn't there John I think we've talked about it yeah. quite a few times in a couple of cases really with Liverpool players one is one that jumps out to me as you're talking is Mamadou Sakho. Um, there's still there's still fans out there now that that will send messages to us saying, well, you know, he, his performances at times were clearly better than some of the centre halves that have been getting a game for Liverpool this season. But but because he's obviously broken Klopp's code, if you like, more than on more than one occasion, he's he's bombed out. He's gone. He's not getting that chance. And you know. As far as Klopp's concerned, he's he's out the club and he's away, and it seems no matter what, he will not he will not back down on that. Yeah, and and, and there's a similar thing going on. It, it seems I don't think it's, it's the maddest thing in the world to say with Sturridge as well. In that, you know, he's had his chances here and there. In fact, he he did a similar thing in, in that he's played him out of position at times as yeah. well. And all right, Sturridge played it, but. He made it known that he wasn't happy about it. He went public with it. He, you know, he, he was he was happy to speak to journalists and say, "I should be through the middle. That's where I'm good and all this." And it, and it does make you think the amount of times he's called on Firmino over him, Origi over him. You know, it does. I, I don't think it's unfair to say it looks like his, his days are numbered and, and perhaps that's what Damien's talking about, the cultural thing. Yeah, I think it is, and I think Klopp's obviously somebody who invests in this heavily, and I think. Different clubs, probably all around the world, even successful ones, obviously put it more at the forefront than others do, and that'll be kind of interesting to, to know, kind of Damien's like angle on that, really. But it was a, around the time of the Sacco thing, and me and you were talking about it, and we did a video on it. Was was Costa at Chelsea, and it was interesting that he was one minute looked like he was going to China, yeah. got dropped from the squad completely. The next minute he was back in, and the manager was asked about it. Conte was asked about it, and basically said, "Well, look, we need him now." You know, and, and it was it wasn't necessary. It wasn't really a ringing endorsement of his as a human being, and he doesn't say yeah. you know, oh, he's a great lad. You know what I mean? It was like, well, we need him at the moment, and so I guess it's it's that issue really about the, the football managers have all got with which is short term game versus long term really. And yeah. you know, if Conte was here now, he might say, well, look, he's gone in the summer, but I now, now I've got a league to win, and and it, and it's tough for managers, isn't it? No one's saying it's easy. Oh. 100% it's a difficult task and I can understand it but that's where I often encourage if, you, if you're serious about putting culture at the heart of it there will be times where you're going to have to make tough calls so yeah. I've worked with some coaches I'll give you a couple of examples from and not necessarily in football yeah. but in, in, um, in other sports where we've really gone overboard in terms of communicating these are the rules of the game and if you don't play, with, play them there are consequences so I worked in one team where uh, we had one lad that when they did like the hospital visits in one of the rugby clubs, when they did like the community visits and things like that, there was one lad who'd always find a way of getting out of it. So if he could make an excuse, he'd do it. And there was other times, other, other, like, other, like other teammates would have to come in and go and, go and visit a sick kid in hospital or things like that. And eventually the head coach dropped one of his big players for doing it. And communicated it really clearly, just said to him, you dropped because you missed a, hotel, uh, a hospital visit this week. And what that tells me is, you might think that's a minor transgression, but what that tells me is, you're not a team player. Because you're waiting for somebody else to bail you out. You're more interested that somebody else will find you out. And if you'll do that when there's no pressure on you, I'm not sure I want to trust you in the big games when there is. Now, what you found is, in that case, the message was significant that this player wound his neck in because he wanted to be part of it. I've worked with other coaches where I'll say to them, you know, if you're a coach, go and do simple things. Like when the players are going through the staff canteen, go and stand at the end and go and see which players just fill the plate up, 
regardless of there might be a big queue of players behind them. Because that tells you more about them, that they're just thoughtless or selfish. Because they don't care that they might only be a limited supply of food. It's as long as I get enough on my plate, I don't care that there's 10 lads stood behind me. So like the Guardiola example of go and watch the bench when the game's going on, because you'll find out when people react in those key moments what they really like. You find out whether you want them as part of your culture or not. And I think the example you're saying about um, storage, for example, at Liverpool, I think often what, like, as fans, we look at it and go, but he's a really talented player. But actually, as a coach, you say, but the damage they would do to your culture to keep rewarding talent, you're sending a really bad message to the rest of the squad that says, so if you're talented, you can get away with whatever you want. Whereas what about your less talented players that need the discipline, that need to work mm. hard? You need to send it out to your lowest, to your level of everybody rather than just pander to your uh, to your superstars. So, Damien, no, it's all right. Um, so would that come into the big, the big pictures type scenario then that you've got on, on, on here that we've got in front of us is that how then... Who does the big picture idea mainly come from? Would you say it's the, the coach or would you say it's the top brass at the top, at the top of the club, whether it's you no know, football club or rugby club, you know, um, and how do they try and work into that, especially at a club like Barcelona? Well, I think there's three bits to it. It's a good question. So there's three bits to the big picture stuff. The first is the why. Why are we doing this? And I think often, you'll, if you dig around in the sort of social or historical context, you'll find that. So that's very much, it, that should be driven by the club, that should almost be a permanent. The what element of it, how are we going to play, the style, the identity. If you're a coach and there is that historical thing, like at Barcelona, Cruyff came in and, and gave that blueprint and all the other coaches are following it. You know, at Liverpool, for example, you could argue Shankly came in and imposed that style of play that Paisley then took on and, you know, through the 70s and 80s for you. But a coach should be doing that or certainly tapping into it. I think where coaches today at somewhere like Liverpool, it goes down to the how. And that's the and that's the behavioural code that high performing cultures have. It's this is how you're gonna behave. I'm gonna carry on. I'd like I'm like I'm the keeper of the flame, if you like, and I'm the one that's gonna maintain the standards of it. And I think these trademark behaviours, they don't have to be difficult to do, but and often they're already there. So I'll give you an example. I, I, I worked at a um, at one of the Premier League clubs I worked at a few years ago. They were, they were in difficulties at the time. They were 18th and there was about four months left of the season when I got the call to go and work with them. So the question I asked them was, I said, we need to find out our trademark behaviors, how we're going to run this. So the question I said, they were playing uh, Swansea, this team, on the Saturday. We're in on the Tuesday. I said, what's the manager of Swansea saying about you as a set of blokes? And they came back, and I, I got them to, be, to imagine what the Swansea coach was going to describe them like, not talent-wise, just what sort of blokes are you? And they came back with a mixed bag. They said, we're talented but fragile, we've got good players, but our heads go down easy, things like that. I said, are you happy to be associated with this? And all of them, right, quite rather, no, not really. So I said, tell me your best game. Tell me the game that you wouldn't think has defined you as a team when you've been at your best in the last six months. And they gave me one particular game where they'd won 2-0. It was against one of the big clubs. And I said to them, what did the coach say about you after that? And they came up with what they said. Well, we had found our three behaviours. The first one was, they said, sensible hard work. We all worked hard, but we did our job. We weren't just running around for the for show. Second one was resilience. They said, we didn't score till the last 10 minutes, so we just kept going. And the third one was, they said, and we stuck together. 
So my question was, if we married that up with your talent, do you think we'll get out of trouble? They went, would have never been in trouble. And over the next eight weeks that we just were relentless on this, we ended up, I think we won four, drew two and lost two, but they got back to mid-table, which is where they claimed they should have been. Now, what was really interesting was the players then started to run the dressing room. So there was different examples that happened. So we had, um, like, towards the end of the season, two of the players, the leaders of the dressing room, went to the head coach and said, uh, and gave him the name, because they had quite a few players on loan, they said, would rather play young kids from the youth team than have a couple of these players that were on loan, because they were coming from big clubs. So, and when I spoke to them about it, they went, they're not showing the behaviours because it doesn't matter to them. If we get relegated, they, they walk away at the end of the season anyway, back to a contract. So they started running the dressing room and recognising who was doing the sensible hard work, the resilience and the sticking together more than others. The, the, and that's how you start to create a culture. So from, from a coach's point of view, I understand the short-term pressures, but you need to say, but ultimately, if you're going to fail, <clears throat> fail on your terms, fail on going out in the way that you would want a team to play, the culture you want people to behave, rather than being reactive to, or being a, a, you know being held ransom by your most talented players, deciding if they fancy it or not. On, on the big picture section, just to, to wrap this little bit up, if you like, I just wanted to, I pulled out, I went back to Jürgen Klopp's very first yeah. press conference because I just thought, in light of what I'd read of your synopsis and how this big picture is so important, I just wondered what we could pull out from what Klopp said that first time in front of the press and some really interesting stuff when you look, especially now with hindsight. So, uh, talking about sort of obviously Liverpool's great history and the managers you've lifted, European Cups and everything else. Uh, Klopp's asked about that and he says, you know, not one of these great managers said in his first press conference, I want to be a legend when I leave here. We've got to work in the present. Uh, transfers, he, 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 he blew that out of the water. He said, I have the first and the last word. Success, he says, that the opponents who are bigger, maybe, but in a special Liverpool way, we can be successful. He talked about time. He said, please give us time to do the work. When I sit here in four years, I think we may have one title. If not, maybe I'll win the next one in Switzerland. Uh, <laughs> style, he said, we have to entertain them. We have to make their lives better, talking about fans. He said, if it's possible, can we be the hardest team to beat in the world? Let's try to be this. If you are this, it's not that far away to be a team who can win games expectations he talked about that he said first of all we have to talk with all Liverpool Football Club fans talk about what are expectations because expectations can be a real big problem it's like a backpack of 20 kilos it's not so cool to run with this he also said don't say I'm Jesus then criticise me for not being able to walk on water <laughs> which I loved at the time and finally uh, the big one that we all know and that he's, he's, he's often repeated over and over is we have to change from doubter to believer now I think he's great Klopp I, I mean I, I, I liked him when um, he was at Dortmund obviously but when I read a bit about his history so um, Raphael Honigstein wrote that book, Dar Reboot, about, mm. about how German football had changed its culture and its identity. And obviously he's a, he's a big figure in it. And I think one of the things that Klopp did is that he talks about everything around him is this sense of there's no superstars in, in his world. It's all about young kids that are, that are hungry and prepared to suffer. And then secondly as well, it's all about hard work. So if you look at what he did at Mainz 
when he first got his break there because he came from um, he came from no I can't remember his coach's name but he's a, he's a seminal figure in German football the guy that had taken over I think it was some Ralph somebody or other and it was all about drilling people to an inch of their life don't you know learn not to get beat because he was a centre half himself wasn't mm. he club don't get beat and then we can look to attack you after that and I think if you look at some of his comments there that you've just read out it is all about hard work it's all about humility there's some of the standard stuff that we've said about Barcelona the main one for me is that we have to change from Zalta to Believer because I know when he did his first interview with LFC TV it yeah. was that that was what his message to the fans was and I think to be honest well certainly in my, in my, in during my lifetime and a lot of lads from my generation is we are we have been doubters very much because every year it's been you go in with a little bit of hope. Not, you're not always thinking we're going to win the league, but when the when the realization hits you that you're not going to win the league or not even win win a trophy, full stop. That's when you're like thinking, are we ever going to win another trophy again? Are we ever going to challenge at the top end of the table again, or are we just now going to be where we are between fifth to eighth place? Yeah, and is that it? So that in itself is the massive challenge for Klopp, never mind winning a title. It's but, getting uh, back up there. And whilst I accept that, you say, so the idea of how, so how do you go from a doubter to a believer? The point is, if he tells you and says, listen, any team that you come and watch from me, we will be, we will be anybody on hard work. Nobody will beat us on hard work. Nobody will beat us on resilience. Nobody will beat us on uh, discipline. I'm, not, I'm just giving you some examples. If he tells you that and you can go, and you see that every game, he's doing what he said he would do. Maybe a team with more talent might beat you, but actually you've done what you said. You've mm. behaved in the way that you can. That's where you start to believe there's credibility in what he's saying. And this is very much, if you go back to the Cruyff example we were talking about earlier, Cruyff was clear about this is what we're going to do. So Barcelona have got what they call two keystone habits that they practice but what their two things are they say first one is they have the five second rule they say if we ever lose the ball we'll aim to get it back within five seconds so if you ever watch any of their teams as soon as they lose the ball they've done this statistical analysis the opposition are more vulnerable to lose it so the rule is you run as hard as you can after the guy that's got the ball but you also have to have the trust that two other people are running as hard as they can behind you the rule is, if you don't win it after five seconds, retreat and present a formidable wall. The second rule is, aim for 70% stats possession. Because they said, we're good enough to circulate the ball, so you don't always have to look to pass it forward, just pass it, pass it, pass it. Because if we get 70% possession, we'll beat most teams at later in games, because we'll have exhausted them by that stage. Now, if they tell you that, chances are they'll win more games than, than they'll lose. And if they win more games, they're going to be in competition for a title. That makes sense, but yeah. it's almost about the behaviour. So, it's so the idea of how do you change from a doubter to a believer? It's a nice, like, and I can see why it appeals. The line is nice, but you say, how do we do that? And I think what Klopp needs to come out if he hasn't already done and say, these are the rules of the game. These are the three behaviours that that you will always guarantee you will see from any of my teams. And if you can see us doing that, I'm confident if we can marry that up to the talent, we'll get more wins than we do. do. And I, I don't I promise titles, promise promise behaviours, because yeah. people can see that, it's tangible. I think he has done that. And like, if you look at, I mean, you know, doing what we do, we're sort of examining almost every word that he says and I'm watching his press conferences and everything else and, and now even doing a show straight after. Um, but I remember one in particular where he sort of came out, he, he's tried to change the crowd's behaviour a lot. 
you know, he's talked about, you know, the doubt of believer thing, but also in terms of people getting off early and, and sort of, you know, even sort of getting on the backs of the players after sort of 20 minutes or so if you yeah. haven't scored and that sort of thing. He's talked about that. The one, what was really interesting, I can't remember what game it was now, but he, he basically said, when you come here and you watch this team, every week this team will be ready and every one of these players you can trust that they will work as hard as they can Brilliant. you don't have to get on their backs you don't have to doubt that they're being unprofessional you don't have to doubt that you know just because they're playing a, a so-called smaller team that they won't be fired up for it they will because I will make sure they will Brilliant. and I, I thought that was spot on and so it's like what you're saying he's not saying from day one well he did he did mention title but then German said a lot of Germans said what he means by title he means cup Right, you know I mean? yeah, he, means, yeah. he means win something. He doesn't necessarily mean the title, but that was more important, like you say to me, because you know that is what you've got on, on on players' backs for in the past. You've gone, you know, him there. He doesn't look, you know, he doesn't. His attitude isn't right. Yeah, he's not running hundred percent. But when the manager's telling you, and it's almost every week, he, he's saying it in a different way. Then over a period of time, you think, well, we we are at home. We are going to work our bollocks off. We are going to get stuck into them. We are going to make it hard for every single team we play. And I think I think we have done that. Okay, results haven't gone the way the way we wanted every week. But I don't think there's ever been one has to really wear. I mean, mm. I mean, people have talked about him being knackered or playing too much or whether he's rotated enough and all that. I think all of those things are probably fair enough. I don't think there's been much questioning of the actual attitude of the players that much as the. Which is no, certainly not. Which which you say is testament, yeah. and I think, you know, that's what Klopp's done, and, he, and he's he's kind of laid that out there. Oh, and so there is a minimum expectation now, uh, and kind of kind of fans see that, and he's kind of done it as well. But what I really liked about about looking back on these early comments as well is there's 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 a kind of a path to achievements if you like as well and I kind of really like that as well from a supporter's point of view because I think we've had managers in the past who've come in and said it's a big job this you know it's going to be a lot of hard work five and year for five year plans we've had we've had expectations <laughs> managed and stuff and as a supporter you, you kind of don't really want to hear that really you yeah. want to hear the you know you, you, there's patience and stuff you know that's there but you don't want to hear like oh you know how hard it's going to be and, and how even the great man Jose Mourinho exactly. says that Liverpool have got problems exactly that's what Roy Hodgson said when he was managing Liverpool. Yeah. <laughs> 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 well, I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because, like, like, I know I've told you before that I follow United, and you see, yeah. like, culturally, what happened at United when Ferguson stepped down and Moyes came in. And one of the things that, like, you saw very quickly was the language he was using in yeah. the press conference as a leader. And what frightened me like really early on as a United fan and, and I can really empathise with what you're saying on some of like Roy Hudson's comments was there's only three expectations that you can hold there's only three things that when we talk about expectations you either expect to lose you can hold you can hope to win or you expect to win now you can only focus on one of them your brain can only focus on on, on, on any one of them so when you start so Ferguson had that sense at United of well, it's his famous line, isn't it? Manchester United will never get beat. We'll occasionally run out of time, but we'll never mm. get beat. And it's that idea of we expect to win everything and we'll keep coming at you. And when Moyes came in and started saying, well, we hope to make it difficult for Newcastle, you know, we, yeah. we aspire to be like Manchester yeah. City. You, you're basically trying to culturally shift people's expectations to, well, it'd be nice if we could win. And I think what, like reading some of Klopp's comments there, that idea of, no, 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 we expect the best, we expect to win, we expect to do this. There's nothing wrong with that. People, and and if he says, we expect it, and this is how we're going to do it, 
people can then hold if sometimes you're unlucky, sometimes mm, yeah. another team might be better than you. People can accept that, but the expectation is you should always go out there to win, not make excuses early on to alleviate the pressure. The the next one along is is artefacts and symbols, and I think we've it, it sort of comes at a good point this in the conversation because what I wanted to ask you as well, Damien, is I, I think it's interesting that, you know, like Joel, you said before, like, does it come yeah. from the owners? Does it come from the manager? I, I think it's it's clear that the owners did want Klopp. They specifically wanted yeah. Klopp. And it feels to me that when we talk about this next bit now, it does feel like they've married what Liverpool expect, what Liverpool's been about in the past, to, to almost a manager who can, who can provide those things, who plays that way. You, you know, who's sort of almost hand in glove with values of that Liverpool have always held. So, you know, Liverpool fans, when they go to the match, they've always expected hard work from players. They've yeah. always expected us to give a tough game to anyone. And when that hasn't been the case, then we've massively got on the back of the manager or the, or the group of players that have been responsible for that. So, you know, take, take it back to the last time Liverpool were in the Champions League, for instance, under Brendan Rodgers. When, when we played Real Madrid at home, we laid down. You know, the, yeah. and our own fans were taking pictures of them, and it, it was like we rolled out the red carpet and said, "Oh, we are, as we are, Madrid, come and have a game, lads." And 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 people who've gone the match for years and you had the old values still instilled in them, if you like, they were like, "That isn't what Liverpool do." Yeah, we should have been flying into them. We should have crippled Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> we should have, you know what I mean? Yeah, we should yeah. have done anything possible to get a result there, and we didn't do that. And neither did the crowd. And you know, the whole thing felt felt a bit broke. Yeah, and and so getting Klopp in, I think. You know, you, you talk about in your artefacts and symbols section of your synopsis that you sent over to us of the new book. You talk about anything that reinforces an identity, the club values, even things like buildings as well, and you know, sort of showing a pathway from from the youth team to the first team. That's another thing that Liverpool have been about in the past. And again, I think you can see things that both the club and the owners, to be fair, have done. I mean, there's a lot of criticism still for the owners right now at the moment. Always the way when things go slightly yep. airy and, and not the way you want them to go. But, I mean, and this may be stupid, you may say that, that, that maybe this is a wrong point almost, but the way they've built the main stand and they've put, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it, they put absolutely huge Liverpool badges on the stand, like huge. Right. And you can see them from miles around. When you're walking up to the ground, there's a huge... Liverpool Football Club badge looking at you and when I see that I think great yeah great. of course yeah. that's our identity you know what I mean and they were going to put on it and I'm really gutted that they didn't there was talk of them putting in huge like illuminated letters the Liverpool Football Club but, and, and that actually dates back to uh, I watched something over the weekend and, uh, and Stephen's on the, the club um, the museum fella basically he, he was talking about it and he said there was a plan Sure, it was as far back as sort of 50s, 60s. This was for the Annie Doll, wasn't yeah. it? Sorry to jump in Yeah, there. and they yeah. were going to have on it the Liverpool football club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. And so it was like, it was almost someone somewhere in the club's going, that's a good idea, that. And for whatever reason, that didn't happen. But though, you know, the big badge, the manager who's bold, the, the, the team that works hard, they're all things that fit into your idea that you're talking about here of artefacts and symbols. Yeah, very much. So it's like at Barcelona, the idea that La Masia is a farmhouse where they say we rear our own talent. It's the idea that we bring them through and the fact that when Cruyff came back in in the 90s, he he imposed that every team had to play exactly the same way. So that identity goes right the way down to being a kid and it's about bringing, bringing that through, that idea of being more than a club. It's about how you conduct yourself, how you behave and all of that. And I think when you look at Liverpool, like, you know, we were talking before about 
Liverpool's always had that sense, and this is speaking as an outsider, but it's always been like, you know, the People's Republic of Liverpool. It's always had that sense of independence that you do things differently there. Like, and I think Scouts Manchester's got that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and like, you know, I'm Liverpool first, then I'm, and then I'm English. Yeah. And I get all of that. And I think, you know, this is where the symbolism of having a Scouser somewhere in your team, the idea of somebody carries that cultural heritage, you represent the city, you represent a way of doing things, does carry a lot of weight culturally that, that they almost become the keeper of the flame, if that doesn't sound too grand a term. But I mean, that's why it's important to to fans to see now Steven Gerrard involved back at the academy and things like yeah. that. That's why that feels like a bit of a master trope. I mean, it's been played down by some people, and again, there was debate around it. And some people said, well, maybe you don't need a figure like Steven Gerrard at the club. Maybe he's too big almost. And I think we, we've talked about this before. I think when Brendan Rodgers was there, then perhaps that was true in that if Steven Gerrard comes back then in, in, in any kind of coaching capacity, I think he's almost big, well he is, he's bigger than Brendan yeah. Rodgers. Whereas now, Klopp's such a huge character, he's already so well liked, that it just feels like Gerrard's slotting in, but it also feels like he's slotting in and he's making Liverpool more Liverpool, but he's not a threat to the man at the top because he's so big. Yeah, well, I mean, Simon Cooper did that book on Soconomics, didn't he, where he spoke yeah. about how um, how a manager actually wields around 10% effect. So people overestimate the like the cult of a coach, whereas the reality is the most they'll make is around ten percent in terms of impacts on performance. So for a coach, what is incorporated within that ten percent? So how are they going to get the best out of it? Some of it is around their cultural fit. Do they? Re- so like you look at Roy Hodgson, his cultural fit for you guys was just it was it was zero. So it was a ridiculous decision to bring him in. I know he had different qualities and things like that, but there was a study done in Aussie Rules Football that said, if you get the right cultural fit for a coach, it almost negates experience. So if you've got someone that understands the way you do things around there, that almost counts for as much as somebody that might have had 10 years of working at another club. Mm. So I think your idea of bringing in someone like Gerard, I think if he's done but if that message to him is come back in and represent you represent something of the Scouse way of doing it but equally you're not coming in here as a manager in waiting you've got to earn your stripes you've got to do it a bit like what I think Newcastle the mistake they had with Shearer Shearer was always lingering and wanted waiting to they had to almost let him go and fail before people could move on from mm. him I think for you if you can bring in Gerard in with the sense of you earn your stripes here you come, but you represent us to the next generation coming through. I think the power of it is huge. Yeah, and um, uh, well, you've seen it now with Chelsea as well. Frank Lampard's going in, isn't he? Um, doing is a, it? Doing right. a bit of coaching here and there. And even said he's now admitted he's looking at coaching when he finally hangs up his boots. But just going back onto the things outside the buildings, um, Robbo, um, what I've noticed this season, and I'm sure you and Gibbo have as well, is um, all the things that they've added outside the cop and the, the Sensini, where it's all that Anfield where greatness happens. And it comes on to like sort of what you said about the big crests being outside the new main stand, but all this as well. I mean, personally, I'm not I'm not too fussed by it. I mean, there's probably a lot of fans who might think it's a bit tacky or whatever, but it's it's coming into what Damien was mentioning there about your branding outside the outside the stadiums. You know about like this is this is where something amazing happens. You know, you've got Klopp on a big game poster outside one. You've got the likes of Rush Fowler. You've got some of the current players as well. But the one for Barcelona for me is all the time. Whenever you've seen it on the telly, is they have that. Club motto that mess Kayoon club 
in big letters in the state yeah. inside the stadium on one of their on one of their main stands. Yeah, and I think and, and and all that plays a part. I think the other bit I spoke about with the art in the artifacts chapter that I did is the reason artifacts become important is you can almost navigate where you are on the journey. So what I mean by that is there's a concept. Um, it's a Harvard professor, a lady called Ross Cantor. And she introduced this idea called Cantor's Law. And Cantor's Law says, whenever you do anything, it always looks like a failure in the middle. So whenever, you, so think about setting a New Year's resolution. Mm. New Year, new you, you're all excited. <laughs> yeah. By February, you forgot it all. Because it, but it, cause it's almost that initial enthusiasm wears off. And if you carry on persisting, there'll be a bit in the middle where you're too far in to go back, but you're not far enough to, get, to see the end. Mm. So it always feels like a lull in the middle. And what artifacts, the real power of what they can do is, they plot your way along that journey, because it will happen. You'll have the enthusiasm of clock coming in. Then you'll have the idea that you've, like, you take the leap to follow him, because he's, cause he's set the destination. And then you'll have the slump in the middle, which is maybe what's happening now, you know, like you've been knocked out of cut competitions and times are tough. So you go through that tough period, and then you start the climb again. And then eventually you win the trophies that Klopp's talking about. So I think the idea is some of the artifact, like there's different ways. There's, there's some of it just the symbolism of different things, like bringing Gerard in is a good, is a symbol of we're not losing sight of our Scouse heritage. Some of the speeches that he gives are really powerful. So at Barcelona, a lot of uh, like speaking to some of the players for the book, they said, the big moment for them was when Guardiola got on the front foot against Mourinho when he came out and in that semi-final in 2011 when he came out and said to him, you're the boss in the media room but you're not the boss out on the field. And some of the players went, that was the first time where you give the impression of, I'm fighting on the front foot with you. So sometimes the speeches they can give you, things like that. And sometimes it's, it's the ceremonial stuff, the idea of handing the baton on to somebody else, that the idea of bringing people in that you see that they're going to carry it on. And, you know, from your point of view, you had the kid that scored in the League Cup, the and youngest. Been, yeah. yeah, you know, you're starting to see some of these... There's there's a symbolism and a ceremony of starting to bring through your own time. Not just talking, you've got great kids coming through Melwood. You're actually seeing it again. And I think, don't underestimate how powerful they are as artefacts and symbols for, for progress. I think what's interesting about, about this particular strand as well is, is almost when when clubs get it wrong as well. So at Liverpool, um, you know, it's it's often perceived, perceived as just moaning or cry arson or being an old bastard or however you want to present it because all of those things have been said. But I mean, I, I was one of them as well, to be fair. You know, when you see things plastered across Anfield that are advertising slogans, but they just don't make sense in the context. So we had, we come not to play when, we, when, yeah. when Warrior were, were making the kits before New Balance. And it was like, well, well what the what the fuck does, what that does it mean? mean? Yeah. <laughs> and why is it written all over Anfield? Anfield's a place we do come to play. You know, yeah. what are you talking about? And so it, it, it sort of jarred with you when yeah, you yeah. Went, went to your a place you've gone to for, you know, 20-odd years. And you see that there and you think, no, that's not our, our oh, Well, I'm on a campaign for that. Like, when I go around sports, when I work with sports teams and that, and I always say, get that shit down. Like, the, yeah. the posters in the dressing room of losers never win and quit, or whatever it is, <laughs> like, quitters never lose. I, 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 I can't remember it. Because you go, it's nonsense. Because yeah. sometimes winners do lose. It's like, so <laughs> get down. But it's like they put it up there. Like, we, and it's, if it doesn't mean anything to the behaviours... 
the behaviours is, you know, if you mm. put mm. something up that challenges people on behaviour, <laughs> not on just some slogan, some throwaway remark, we come to play. What does that actually mean? It doesn't mean anything, does it? It's just... And that can often then jar against the culture of what you're really about, and it's about reinforcing. We're on a journey here, and this is where we are with it, but these are the behaviours that are going to get us there. All right, your next one was uh, recurring systems and processes. Uh, nice quote in there from uh, Sir Alf Ramsey where he says six times, and I'm not going to do it six times. <laughs> Constant repetition gets the message home, and then another five. Um, but, you know, again, um, I, you know, I, when I read that, I thought I've, I've heard Klopp say things and I've heard players say things, and we've seen it written down about things, you know, it's... Klopp said football's about training and all that we've done is because of the work we've done together. There was the boot camp of the summer, which was well documented, 7am starts, triple sessions. There was Moreno, Alberto Moreno, speaking in December 2015. <coughs> he actually said that some of the stuff they were doing with Klopp was boring, but it, it's obviously a recurring system and process. Yeah. He's doing the same thing over and over again. He said, with Klopp, the training sessions are all about tactics in order to have the team well positioned on the pitch and to know how and when to press. And then, you know, we've obviously seen, you know, whatever you thought of those comments when they were coming out at the time, you know, some people again have the doubts, uh, as we talked about earlier, but but it, it seems like, again, it's it's something you've you've pulled out as being a strand of success and it's something that Klopp's doing at Liverpool. It's all about reinforcing it, yeah. So the repetition is, if what you're doing every day, if it either reinforces a behaviour, so... There was a brilliant psychological study. The most effective speed deterrent for cars is the radar displays that flash up your speed. So there's all kinds of studies that say having policemen out there with speed guns or the speed cameras are not as effective as just giving you real-time feedback. So if you're driving through an area and it flashes up, you're doing 40 and this is 30 mile an hour and maybe the happier the sad face. All research says people will adjust their feedback accordingly because mm. it works on the idea of a feedback loop. So you've been given evidence it relates to your behavior and there is a consequence of it so once you've got that the, the, so those three parts of it you can adjust it accordingly so when you think about your everyday environment it's with Klopp is saying to you some of our important behaviors are, are you're going to work hard and when you're on a PC in a camp we're getting you up at seven o'clock in the morning now if somebody isn't ready at seven o'clock in the morning that tells you something about that it goes back to what I'm saying it tells you something about their willingness to work hard to dig deeper you know I, I've seen this in in like boxing where you see there's a lad that I worked with a long time ago who I won't give you his name because what I'll say isn't flattering about him but one of the most talented boxers in the UK I'd say in the last 15 years but he never won anything like if I gave you his name you'd have to w work hard to remember him and the reason is because he'd do his road work when he woke up he wouldn't wake up to do his road work, if that made sense. Yeah. So, so he wouldn't set his alarm to do it. But when he woke up, he'd still run. So he had the he had the discipline to run, but he just wouldn't set his alarm to do it. So all and he was always five minutes late, and because he was sort of like he'd always have a laugh with you and all that. People tended to forget it, and it's oh, it's just what he does. But when it came to his biggest defining fight in his career, he was on a Joe Calzaghe bill when he was fighting in Manchester. Won, won the first six rounds of the fight, lovely, he was boxing the other lad's head off, he was winning on points. Last six rounds where it didn't come down then to ability, came down to that willingness to dig deep, that ability to do something even when you might be tired or the, to find something extra within yourself. He'd never practised it. He'd never consistently done that in his life. 
So when he really needed to do it, he wasn't capable of going to that place and finding it. That makes sense. Yeah, he didn't have and, to learn. And after it, like the other yeah. guy was just resilient, stayed in there, and it was the last six rounds that stuck in the minds of the judges and ended up winning him. And the point, I remember listening to his coach at the time, he says, you didn't lose the fight tonight, you've lost it in the last 10 years. When we've been giving you that message of that discipline, that everyday repetition of what you do, is what's really cost you. And I think this is why, from a football club, if you say training starts at 10 o'clock, the idea, it's the old Lombardi rule, you, you're there at 20, uh, half past nine, you're ready to go at half past nine. That tells you that you've mentally turned up and you're prepared to do it. If we tell you that we're going to work hard and we set it for seven o'clock, you get up at seven o'clock, there's no grumbling about it. So what, again, going back to the Barcelona thing, this is what Guardiola had in place. So he almost designed, so when they went to a new training ground, uh, the Juan Camper, uh, Gamper training ground, he almost designed the whole thing. So it was all around those three behaviours, humility, hard work and, dis- and team first. The whole thing was around that. So you had to sign in for training. And if you, so you had to sign in to register that you were there an hour beforehand. It's about the hard work. When, if you were five minutes late on the training pitch or something like that, they hit you with big fines that escalated all the way up. Another thing they did was that if the, if you won three consecutive games, Guardiola and his and his staff would take you out for a meal, take the whole squad out for a meal to reinforce that team spirit thing. And it was that idea of understanding what the behaviours were and then constantly reinforcing it and players that were transgressing it, the FIFA effect kicked in. They either quickly adapted their behaviour like a speed display telling you, slow down, or the consequences were, they were removed. There was a consequence for doing it. And it has to be something that when you design a culture, it's every day, is, it's reinforcing it and giving those messages off that will eventually see people either adjust their behaviour accordingly. In this, on this one, then what 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 happens when it goes wrong? Because I think this is what everyone's going to be listening and thinking. When Liverpool were on that, I mean, fortunately we're out of it now. Yeah. But when they're on, when we're on this run, one win in ten, everyone's saying Liverpool can't beat, you know, in inverted commas, the smaller clubs. Yeah. Uh, meantime, the record against inverted commas again, bigger clubs is great. So therefore, you know, everyone, fans, players, etc., will go to a bigger game expecting Liverpool to do something. Equally, though, when it's a smaller club, everyone goes there shitting themselves, thinking, well, there we go, Liverpool are going to do that again. Isn't there a problem there that the players start to do that as well? I mean, one of the things that I found really annoying, you know, being on the internet, is, is fans start sharing things and start saying the same things, especially when things are going wrong. And there's this that, that fucking Einstein thing going round about, you know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing <laughs> yeah. over and over or whatever. And they all wanted to see what what they seem to be pushing for is Klopp to suddenly break out of this and go, it's not working. I'm going to do something else. We're going to play four four two. I'm going to bring Sturridge back. I'm going to put someone else in goal. Blah blah blah. But he didn't. You know, he might he fine tuned it. Yeah. But but. Broadly speaking, he stuck with his, his principles. He said that in the press conference as well. I mean, he was getting asked questions along the lines of, well, well what do you change here? What do you do? And he was yeah. like, nothing. I don't change anything. I keep doing what I'm doing because I believe in it. And I think that's really powerful because if you're a player that you then see your manager throwing his principles out. So he's told you, he's got you up at seven o'clock in the morning. He's beasted you. He's bored you, like you said, Mourinho said, in terms of tactics and things like that. And as soon as you come up against the problem, oh, throw that out of the window and we'll try something different. It almost that sense of of self-assurance that that coach has suddenly gets diminished a lot and th- so then what do you do next time there's a crisis 
you can you're always sort of flailing and flapping around now this isn't to say that that you keep doing the same thing even if it's not working but if he really believes in it and he's making tinkering and adjustments i think there's something in the power of that that you go this guy believes it this guy's a proper it's like the Cruyff thing when Cruyff came in at barcelona you know he said like when the fans used to whistle when it it was all about passing it he said it was his he had an assistant called Charlie Rayshack who said that the fans used to love it if somebody whipped a crossover, even if there was nobody in the middle. <laughs> but it was what they loved. And then yeah. when it was the idea of just pass it, pass it, pass it, the fans would whistle them. And it was Cruyff saying, so no, 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 that's what I want you to do. This is the way we're going to play it and we're going to be consistent with that. It takes courage to stay true to your principles. And, and, and this goes so back to... it's not the definition of insanity after all. No, necessarily. <laughs> well, I, I think, as I said to you, there's, there's keystone habits that have to be there. So at Barcelona, I said to you about the 70% possession. So what do they do every day in training? It's the rondos, it's the passing drills that are constantly about reinforcing it. So when they go difficult, are they capable of whacking it long? Yeah, sometimes, but they will always go back to those principles. The other one is the five-second rule will always chase you hard, so it's always about being reactive to what's happening. And you, Barcelona don't sacrifice those principles for it. They're, they're, so they're mm. the keystone that everything else is built on. Now, you might occasionally change it, but you will go back to those principles. And I think if I was a Liverpool fan watching Klopp, that's gone through his first real test of those 10 games, I'd actually be reassured that this is a guy that genuinely does believe in his principles. He's not going to be going for the latest in vogue style. He's not going to mm. be shifting it. What he's, like, what he's telling you is what he does and he's prepared to, he's prepared to resist any pressure. I think that gives you real cause for optimism. And what he also did as well was his mad, uh, his mad outburst when Mignolet uh, saved the penalty as well against uh, Chelsea. <laughs> he, he's seen signs of the linesman uh, screaming, uh, right. we will not be beaten or something like that. <laughs> you will not beat us. <laughs> not beat us, that's but, it, yeah. But I think it comes back to, like I, it, like, I don't think it's necessarily the style of play. I think what we were speaking about before um, in terms of what was going on for you in that period I think culturally there was other more fascinating things happening so one of Klopp's thing is always it's about it's a democracy No, there's no stars there's no things like that and I think the fact that there was the focus on on your striker Mane Mane and I think the focus on him being away as if he was somehow more important than anybody else I think culturally that that gave some players an excuse. Mm. And I think, I, I wouldn't be surprised, knowing what the little bit I know about Klopp, that he'll have observed that in terms of how many players use that as an excuse that Armani oh, is and therefore he saves us games. And he'll find out something around. They're not the ones that are going to be sticking around for his four-year journey that he's describing. Because if you're prepared to be mentally... I hesitate to use the word soft, but if you're looking for an escape route, mm. a get-out that says somebody else should be stepping up in that case, I suspect Klopp's found out something about the character of his squad. Well, that, it's, it's incest on that particular point as well, that in that finaldom, um actually referenced him in an interview. He said, you know, he was asked about Mane, and he said, well, Mane's played when we've been beat. You know, Mane doesn't solve everything. He, it wasn't his, It wasn't down to him that we won everything. It wasn't down to him that we lost anything. And that felt like because we discussed this point before we came on here, and it felt it felt like you know maybe something has been said internally, and that's why Ronaldo was maybe saying that. Uh, where are we up to now? Um, well, it's the cultural architecture. Cultural architecture. Yeah. So, and, and and this is where it links because 
what the, the, so I was telling you about cultural architects mean that the real power in the dressing room isn't necessarily the coach. The coach sets the tone, but who runs your dressing room? Are your dressing room leaders, your cultural architects, the guys that 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 they're the ones that when they speak, everybody listens. They're the ones that if they tell you to wind your neck in, other players all 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 adjust accordingly. And I think what Barcelona did when Guardiola came in, it was significant that his first press conference, he basically denounced Eto, Ronaldinho and Deco, said they'll have no part to play in me going forward. And what had happened there is their influence over the two years and during Guardiola's year as reserve team coach, he'd started to see how their behaviours weren't the one weren't the hard work, the teamwork and the humility stuff. So he was seeing the examples where like Messi, for example, the influence of Ronaldinho on Messi was significant, but Ronaldinho was starting to... He's on record as saying himself, he'd come straight to training from a nightclub where he'd get a rub down from the physio where he'd make an excuse for him or when he felt like he was getting tired in a game, he'd fake a muscle injury and come off. And it was all that kind of thing that culturally was sending the wrong message to the guy coming through, which is why... Guardiola came in right away and just said, get rid of these. And instead, he promoted and gave his faith to guys like Iniesta, guys like Xavi, guys like Valdez, who are all essentially decent blokes. I mean, I was telling you the example, like, and I was telling my wife this when she laughed about it when I went to interview Valdez. And um, when I went to speak to him around this, first thing he did was offer to get me a cup of coffee, which he then went to make for himself. And my wife said to me, you impressed with that? And I said, I'm not impressed necessarily. I just thought it was a sign of, in, of just general decency. The fact that he cared enough to say, I'll do it. And he made it, he wasn't waiting for somebody else to do it or for me to initiate it. And I think... I what, feel bad now because I made Josh make that before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. That was only because we were in a rush. I'm not saying it to drop any hints or anything. <laughs> but I think what that indicated was a part of the emphasis that they'd put on it and Valdez told me this himself was that it's about decent people get decent people actually in your dressing room the ones that have got that sense of perspective the ones that don't think the superstars that can get away with whatever they want that are prepared to invest in their talent is what and they were confident these guys had the talent but they'd been reared in that kind of environment that you want decent people running your dressing room so you don't let egotistical superstar behaviours become the norm and I think that's what, to go back to what we're talking about with uh, Mane, it was just as an outsider, you go, how much of it was, whether it's internally or externally, him being put up as some kind of superstar or some kind of saviour, that meant that disrupts it because then other people go, oh, well, we have to wait for him to come back rather than if you, we'll solve this problem ourselves, we'll deal with this in our own way. And maybe it's a storage thing as well, the idea that if he's putting out messages in the media that I should be playing in the position that I should be hang on this is a team and mm. you're not the one that dictates it you, you're only a well, he said he was team. the best striker in the squad as well didn't he yeah, so that, that was another one where you know the people who defend them will say well well, well it arguably he is um, and hasn't he got the right to say that but like you say it's sort of breaking outside of a, of a culture again isn't it and it doesn't necessarily send off the greatest message I mean that 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 section of your synopsis as well I, I pulled out a quote which I really liked was the, the psychologist that you quoted there is it Willie Raylo is that how you yeah, said yeah he was he was um Ericsson, when Sven Ericsson, Sven Goran Eriksson came over, he brought this Willie Raylo with it. He's passed away now, but he was the one that came with Ericsson 
that phrase of cultural architects, the guys that shape the culture of it. There's a quote from him, he, he says, at least three and not more than five such figures in a squad are, are needed by a coach to extend the shared mental model that a team needs for, for success. And we were talking about this before, saying that it, you know, it does feel like Klopp's got some of them, doesn't it? Lallana stands out, yeah. Henderson. Um, another one for me is Milner. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a good shout. he's he's the main one for me. Um, aside from Lallana and Henderson, who, who seems to be like, and we and we and we've seen it when he's when he's captains the side and Henderson's absence. That you know he's a player that he might not be the most vociferous, but what he says counts. And I think that's where potentially you know we may be lacking a bit. The, the only other player that stands out to me apart from them three is perhaps Lovren. I think maybe he's become more, you know it. Involved in that this season, whereas in the past some people might have accused them of being a shrinking violet. But mm. there's there's a there's a pot, there's a potential that I think maybe we need perhaps maybe one or two more leaders when the going gets tough because we can't always rely on the same three or four players to drag us out of it or yep. to rally the rally the players. So it's it'll be an interesting one to see over the coming months whether Klopp will, you know, that'll be one of his main criteria for buying a player in the summer. Well, I think. When you, if you see, if if you're dealing with coaches that are serious about creating a culture, they recruit for a cultural fit, and they say, "How are they going to fit?" So I'll give you a couple of examples. I've seen. So when I work with teams that will go in, this is often one of the first things I'll do. Who are the leaders? Who are the cultural architects in the squad? Because they're the ones whose opinion counts. So if they're the ones that speak up, people will listen and respond. And I remember working. So one team I worked with, um, we had. Um, well, it ended up on the back pages of the paper, so I'll be a, a bit circumspect in terms of the detail. But in this one particular club, there was one of the players, our star striker, who just wouldn't sign into the team behaviours so consistently. So I'll give you an example once. He, he's, um, so he's running through with his mate. His mate has a shot, goes wide. And this particular guy starts to tantrum, you know, throwing his arms round, sort of like looking 360 degrees around the stadium in disbelief that he wasn't passed. So what we did was we, we sat this guy down and said to him, we said, uh, so the first question was, we said, what were you doing there? He said, oh, I couldn't believe that he didn't pass it to me. I said, okay, he's made a mistake, but th- that's a technical issue. What we're interested in is, what were you doing there? What was your behaviour all about? Throwing your arms around, screaming at him, letting, and he eventually admitted he was letting everybody in the stadium. Well, if, well first of all, he claimed, I was, I was telling him he should have passed it to me. He said, he was a yard away from you, you could have said that quietly. And then he eventually admitted he was letting everybody in the stadium know that his mate missed a chance that he wouldn't have missed. So we went back to our behaviours and said, uh, like, hard work, sticking together and resilience. How does that demonstrate it? And he went, doesn't, does it? So we said, so you better start signing up to it. And consistently he kept transgressing what we're doing. And long story short, one of his teammates chinned him in the dressing room. So one of our cultural leaders, this is after about 10 weeks of him consistently being given it and consistently transgressing it came in the dressing room one day after he cost the team the team were winning with a minute to go and he and the ball came to him on the halfway line now as a kid you taught aren't you leg it to the corner flag kick it to the corner flag and leg it and he tried to do something elaborate give it uh, Scott tackled and the other team equalised in the 95th minute and when he got in the dressing room this is after 10 weeks one of the cultural leaders just said we keep telling you and we keep telling you and we keep telling you the only way I think you're going to understand is and then Stuck one on him. Now, what I was always taught is whenever anything like that happens in a dressing room, don't jump in, watch the rest of the room because it'll tell you something culturally about how it's received. And in this case, nobody moved. 
it was one of those incidents where everybody was like, there's feedback for you. And I know it's brutal <laughs> and it's unique to that industry. But the point is, from my point of view, it was like, these guys are stepping up and running the dressing room now. They're taking accountability. They're not waiting for somebody else to do it. They're the ones driving the standard for it. I mean, the other example of it, and this is why I think Milner's a good shout, because he's played out of position, hasn't he, for yeah, all season, season for you, yeah. and there's been no complaints from him about, yeah. I'm your best midfielder. He's just cracked on with it. I remember working at one club where, when we did our trademark behaviours, and so what I did was, I got the players to rate their top five, so the whole squad had to rate who were the ones that demonstrated these behaviours. And there was a kid who was in the squad, I say a kid, he was only early 20s, he was very much an outsider. So, like, some things he did, he didn't help himself. So if the team went out on a social night out, he wouldn't go, things like that. But So he sort of was deliberately isolating himself. And the players were sort of, like, a bit unsure of him. But when they had to rate him against his behaviours, he was far and away in the top five. So it became quite an interesting, almost, exercise for me to look at it from a psychologist's point of view. Because whilst he didn't like him as a person... They've respected him as a as a player, as a as a his, his behaviours, and his status went from being an outsider to being quite a seminal part of the team. Like nobody ever changed the view on him as a person, but they all respected him because the rules of the game were clear. If that makes sense, yeah. And I think when you see somebody like Milner doing it, like the Hendersons, like your Lana's people like that, I think they're really good examples of it. That cultural architects don't need to be the guys that are ploughing into challenges and are getting up screaming and kissing the badge, these are the guys that just run the dressing room against the weight. They almost become the emblem of what the manager wants, the people that embody the behaviours significantly. And once they carry the respect to the rest of the dressing room, they almost make it easy. They'll run your dressing room for you. And is, isn't this then as well another reason why, why you should, you know, despite the sort of 24-7 role and use the need to have a crisis club... You know, you got you got six great clubs there. You've you've only ever got four that are going to qualify for Europe. You've therefore, by definition, got two crisis clubs. You know that that's the way modern footy is. But what a lot a lot of what you're saying seems to say to me that you've got to give these managers time because they can't just go out and recruit. You know, six of these fellas that, yeah. that you know it's going to take them a long time to find the right fits, and perhaps they're going to get it wrong a few times and things like that. And that's what that that's why you know you've got to give the, the manager time as much as that is hard to take as a football fan. Hundred percent, and that's why if you were advising a manager, you'd say to them, like almost you're. I think it's Ferguson's on record as saying as this: if you're a manager, your big relationship is with the guy that appoints you, and I think at the very start of that relationship, you need to be saying to them. This is what you're going to get with me. These are the behaviours. This is where I'm going to do it. And you need to trust me that I'll do that process. And you need to back it. Whereas I think a lot of clubs bring these managers in without being clear of that. And then you've got players on long contracts that are being paid a lot of money that are more difficult to get rid of than it is to do that to a manager. I think Mourinho was a great test case of it last season at Chelsea. Because I think... What would have been fascinating is if Abramovich would have just kept faith with Mourinho, mm. what he'd have done in the summer... Because I think he'd have looked at how many of those players let him down, how many of them shafted him quietly. And I think he'd have seen a cull at Chelsea, but would have cost the manager a lot more money than it was just to pay Mourinho off and bring in somebody else. But I think you're true. I, I think the real onus of responsibility there lies with the people that appoint these managers. I think if you do it, you've got to see it through. 
Do you think that's what, why then what the thinking behind the six-year contract, for instance, for, for Klopp? Yeah, because the reality is, although people might... So I remember asking um, a director of football this when Moyes got it, because there was an element of panic from my point yeah. of view, from the United's point of view. I said, how significant is six-year contracts? And he went, not really. It's more symbolic than it is yeah. in terms of tying anything because there'll be all performance demands in it. So the reality is Moyes got, I think, I'm not... I don't know this for certain. I think he would have got like the equivalent of a 12-month payoff from United, even though he had a six-year contract. But I think symbolically you're sending a message to the players of he'll be here long after you. Yeah. So you either sign into this or you don't. And I think that does count for a lot. The last one then to conclude, we've gone long, Soz, but it's been dead interesting. Uh, the A of the Barca was uh, active management and the importance of leaders. Uh, what I found interesting on this little section of the thing that the synopsis that I read was when you talked about uh, a to-don't list yeah. uh, and almost how, how it defines you, what you choose not to do. Again, I think there's, there's things that Klopp have done there that have pissed the fans off, let's be honest. I mean, you know... There's, there's fans now still talking not least myself at times about you know well why didn't we buy someone in January why didn't we do a bit more business in the summer and, and Klopp just keeps saying look we tried to do bits and bobs we couldn't get them over the line I want the right players he just kept saying I want the right players and so what he hasn't done is what loads of other managers have done where they've got the second choice or the third choice yeah, yeah. or someone who doesn't quite fit a Balotelli or you know mad players we've signed loads of them <laughs> <laughs> but you know is that is that almost defining them is, is that as to don't yeah it is and I, I think the point on this is that it's you, you don't get dragged into every battle so culturally you're the right fit and if you understand what the right fit is you, look, you follow your own trend so again just to go back to the research I've done at Barcelona, like there's some lovely examples of Guard. I was I was saying to you that having sort of met him and his brother, Guardiola and his brother, like what stands out for me is his dad was a builder. You know what I mean? And mm. and and I and I don't say that in a in a disrespectful way. What I mean is he's a guy that's had an extraordinary career, but he comes from an everyday family, if that makes sense. And I think that was what comes across him. Essentially, there's a decency to them. And I think when you see some of the stuff he, that he embodied, so when he first went in at Barcelona, um, he was given a club car, but because his staff weren't given one, he refused to take one. So he's sending a message there of solidarity. So he took a contract uh, to, for some Catalan bank to go and do a series of leadership talks and lectures. And the Catalan press hammered him for it, said, how greedy is this guy? He's had a, like, a stellar career. He's made enough money. He's the head coach of Barcelona. What nobody knew apart from his staff was, the money he got from these talks, he distributed amongst his staff, he didn't take a penny for himself. And he was doing stuff all the time that was just around, sim it was almost about not getting dragged into it, he was clear about what I won't do, but what I will. So he wasn't asking people to work hard and not doing it for himself. He wasn't, he, and I think for a manager, it almost becomes, as I said to you, I think there's only 10% influence you have. So if you're going to maximise that 10%, do it through embodying the behaviours in your own way not being a ridiculous tracksuit manager if that's not what you're about but embody those behaviours so you, it's clear I'm not asking you to do anything that I don't sign up to and people always believe that authenticity of it well that so, was where Klopp was um, when he signed his new contract last last July he, he signed it only because Buvac and Kravitz both got the same deal with them so it's like basically we come here as a team I might be the main man but I'm nothing without them two in, in the background, you know, they yeah, yeah. they are part of the team that Klopp 
takes with him wherever he goes, whether it was that mind or Dortmund. And I think that relates to Guardiola in the sense where he appreciates the hard work that the backroom staff do and clops to a degree. That was why he won sign that new contract. If, they, if, if the club had gone, well, they we're only giving it. you it. We're not. We're only going to give them two years. We, but you're getting six years. He said no. All of them get six-year contracts, so fair play. Brilliant, and I don't know much about the guys that he's got around him, so I, so this isn't based on him, but again, one of the things that was interesting looking at Guardiola as a cultural leader there was, he chose to surround himself, he went out and got people that would challenge his view of the world, because sometimes, and I've been around some of these managers, so I can see it, it's seductive. It's seductive to be in their world, because the... I remember reading Chris Evans, the radio DJ speaker, about this years ago when he, when he said what, what precipitated his crash when he almost lost everything was he says he remembers being sat in the pub one day and he cracked a joke and he said, and I looked round and he said, and everyone's killing themselves laughing. He said, and then it dawned on me, these are all on my payroll. And he said, I had no idea whether what I'd said was genuinely funny or these guys were just being paid to laugh yeah. at me or to laugh with me. And I've been around some of these managers that sometimes they get put on such a pedestal that nobody challenges them. Nobody says something, that's a bit daft, or that's a short-term move, or have you thought about this from a cultural point of view? And I think one of the things that Guardiola did was he chose to have a, an eclectic mix. He had people that you probably never heard of. He had one the guy called Juan Lilo, who's like an old Spanish coach that he really respected. He went out to Argentina to spend a couple of days with Bielsa, you know, he had Cruyff as a mentor to him. He brought in that Manuel SDR, I spoke about earlier, the water polo player. And he had people that made up for some of his deficiencies. I remember talking about, I did a book a few years ago on Ferguson. And one of the things that was significant about him was if you compare him to his next nearest managerial rival, Wenger, in his first 20 years as United coach, Ferguson had six assistants. Wenger had one. Now, you might say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, Ferguson was bringing people in to challenge him. Mm -hmm. So whilst they might have had this sort of autocratic image, people that know him a lot better than I do talk about there was an essential humility. He was prepared to listen to people that maybe knew more than what he did. So he was bringing people in that made up for skill set he didn't have. And I think what and a leader needs to do culturally, and it sounds like Klopp's doing it from what you're saying in terms of the people he's got, he's got people that he trusts have got his back, but equally, and not just prepared to concede to him, not just prepared to be nodding dogs, they're prepared to challenge him, because he needs that stimulation to stop him getting into that sort of autopilot, rolling out the same stuff over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just um, interested to get, get your take on, on how hard you think this all is to do from scratch, so culture, so I think Man City are really kind of quite an interesting club in, in this case because they've um, they've gone through massive changes yeah. in the last 10 years and, and almost what they were like as a club has changed so much from this, you know, you're talking about people who define themselves against other football clubs before and the danger of that and, and totally Man City do, did that but they sort of seem to enjoy it as a football club but we're not them and then now all this new money's come in and, and you know, they've won a few things but probably I would argue underachieved a little bit compared to the, the riches that yeah, they've definitely. had and so and so it feels to me that the, one of the things Guardiola's come in to do is not just to to come in and win things, which is sure it is, but also they've looked at someone who's who's going to impose a, a culture. And I'm yeah. interested to get your feedback on how hard that, is that to do when traditionally your you, you culture, I guess, is, is so far removed from where you want it to be today. Yeah, it, 
it's not easy, so anyone that tells you it is, and I think that's part of the reason people pay lip service to it without understanding it, which is yeah. why I wanted to write the book. Because there was a study done, I suppose the best way to answer it is, there was a brilliant study done in Silicon Valley about 20 years ago by a couple of uh, organisational psychologists, about 25 years ago, that had the same view, that they said, the, the organisation with the best culture will get the best results eventually. And everyone said, prove it. And they went, oh, hang on. So they went into Silicon Valley. And what they did was they did a study with a lot of startup businesses and said, you get five cultures, effectively. They identified five cultures. The first culture you get is a superstar culture. Like, if you want to use a, a football equivalent, Real Madrid, bring the best players, give them the biggest money, give them the best resources, and if it goes well, it'll be spectacular. But if it goes wrong, it'll be spectacular as well. But that's one culture. Another culture you go for is what they call the autocratic culture. So it's just the will of one person, whether that's like Abramovich at Chelsea. So just sack them when I've had enough of them, when I don't get what I want. That can work, as Chelsea have proven, but equally, it sometimes doesn't. The second way is a bureaucratic culture, which I think you guys went for a bit with the Moneyball stuff, when that became dominant, where you get middle managers coming up with the criteria and everything has to balance on a spreadsheet that sort of thing the third way you get is an engineering culture which is about problem solving and fixing things which i think Klopp did a bit of at dortmund but then the fifth way is the commitment culture which is what we've described in this podcast which mm. is very much around getting people to buy into this and seeing it for the long haul and this is behaviors and it represents something bigger than it and what they found in this silicon valley study to go back to that is the the organisations that adopted the commitment culture were always more successful on every measure you want. They went to the market faster, their growth was faster, they resisted redundancies when times got tough. They, so in, in, from an organisation point of view and a results point of view, the commitment culture is the most successful one. And I think this is what, looking at, in the book I was saying about, Barcelona have demonstrated that, that even in football, when they focused on it, they've done better than most. And I know they've had talent, but the culture does play a big part. So I don't think it's easy to do, but the, re the, re the rewards from investing in it and putting it at the centre of what you're aiming to achieve as, as a football club, a business, whatever, are there, they are tangible, that, that they can bring about an improvement. All kinds of figures that people will, will, will give you, 10% improvement, 20%. Almost doesn't matter. I think over the long term, you'll get more of a reward for doing that than keep changing direction and trying to, and being a victim to, to events and to reacting to it. Okay, uh, I think that's been a really interesting podcast. I hope you all agree out there. Uh, thanks again to Damien for oh, coming no, thanks in. Thanks for having me. I've loved uh, it. Thank really you. Really interesting chat. We could probably go all afternoon, but he's <laughs> got to get back to Manchester and his family at some point. Um, if you want to find out more about Damien, uh, he's got a website www.liquidthinker.com. Uh, he's also on Twitter at liquidthinker. Uh, look out for that new book which is coming soon there's already books out there that he's already done which I mentioned at the top of the show well worth looking up um, and that's been the Anfield Wrap today thanks to John and Joel also uh, speak again soon Sports Social Podcast Network